When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Whistle Stop, Slate's new podcast about curiosities from the campaign trail. I'm John Dickerson. This week on the show, Reagan's Nashua moment, a turning point in the 1980 campaign. With one fiery declaration into a microphone, the former California governor put his campaign on the fast track to the White House. That's coming up in just a moment. But first, a word from our sponsor. If you're listening to this podcast, you love history. If you're also like me, you have an app on your iPhone from The Great Courses. Recently, I got one from The Great Courses called The Turning Points in American History. It's got little moments like the ones we discuss on this podcast, President Roosevelt's New Deal, Watergate, moments where special events turn the tide of history. And if you're interested in this, there's a special offer for listeners to this podcast. You can get 80% off the original price of Turning Points in American History. Go to thegreatcourses.com slash whistlestop. That's thegreatcourses.com slash whistlestop. And get your 80% offer for Turning Points in American History. Our whistle stop today is Nashua, New Hampshire, February 23rd, 1980. That's 35 years ago today. It's a Saturday just before the first Republican primary. It is this moment, some people think, that turned the nomination towards Ronald Reagan. It certainly was one of the most dramatic debate moments, if not the most dramatic debate moment in primary history. Republican candidates rumbled into New Hampshire after George Bush's surprise victory in the Iowa caucuses. He'd only beaten Reagan by two points, but it was a surprise. And so he arrived in the first primary state boasting about what he liked to call the Big Mo. He was going to unite the party and take the vulnerable Democratic incumbent Jimmy Carter, whose approval rating had dipped below 30 percent. So Bush was in the ascendancy and Reagan desperately needed to find some way to battle back. His polling showed that at the beginning of the primary fight in New Hampshire, he was nine points down to Bush. What Reagan had in New Hampshire that he didn't have in Iowa was the help of the publisher of the Manchester Union leader, William Loeb. Now, today we have Rush Limbaugh and Mark Levin on the right who are confrontational and they're pushy keepers of the sort of conservative flame. Back then, that's what Loeb was. And he was clobbering Bush, calling him a phony candidate, saying that he was being pushed by the, quote, entire Eastern establishment, the Rockefellers and all the other powerful interests in the East. Loeb, of course, would know from powerful interests since he was a powerful interest and Manchester is not exactly on the West Coast. But never mind. He was battling for Reagan. There were other Republican candidates, five of them. But after the first somewhat uneventful debate in Manchester, Bush and Reagan basically said, we want to have our own debate just between the two of us. Bush thought this was a good idea because he thought he could demolish Reagan once and for all, build on the big mo, and then run through all the remaining contests. Reagan thought it was his chance to build back his stature after the Iowa defeat, and he didn't want the other candidates interfering with that effort. So they colluded, both the Reagan and Bush campaigns colluded with the Nashua Telegraph to hold a two-man debate. 
Senator Bob Dole, who was one of those left out in the cold, he'd only gotten 2% of the vote in Iowa, complained to the Federal Election Commission. He said basically that by allowing a debate with only two candidates, the Nashua Telegraph had given an in-kind contribution to their campaigns. And the FEC agreed. So to get around that, Reagan said, OK, well, I'll just pay for the debate myself. So he plunked down $3,500 and the match was on. On the day of the debate, though, Reagan had a change of mind. He wanted all the candidates in there. He wanted the whole Thanksgiving dinner crew. Bush, though, said no. He wanted to just have that one-on-one -on -one debate, and he said he was going to stick to the original agreement. He was going to keep his word. Reagan's aides, nevertheless, called the other candidates, Congressman John Anderson, Congressman Phil Crane, and Senators Bob Dole and Howard Baker, and invited them to show up at the debate. And the question is whether it was Reagan's sense of fair play or cold feet about facing Bush or whether this was the beginning of a theatrical trap that resulted in the famous moment that I'm building up to with all of this scene setting. This has become such a big turning point in the Reagan campaign. It's second probably only to the Nixon-Kennedy debates in terms of the lore that has grown up around it. The way Reagan aide Craig Shirley tells it, the whole thing was cooked up by Reagan's campaign manager, John Sears, who saw it as a way to make Reagan look commanding and to make Bush look small. It was so premeditated, according to this account, that the Reagan team made sure that they had an ally working the public address system at the Nashua debate so that Reagan would have control of the microphone. As the debate starts, 2,000 people are in a gymnasium. The Reagan and Bush camps were in separate classrooms, and the four also-rans, who Reagan had invited but Bush didn't want on the stage, were in the music room. They would later refer to themselves as the Nashua Four. The debate hour arrived, and nobody took the stage. Bush and Reagan teams were fighting each other over whether to include the others. Each was sending emissaries over to the other's classroom to have expletive-laden debates about who was trying to hoard and swoggle whom. Then Bush and Reagan finally get into the packed hall. And it was madness. I mean, today's debates are held in quiet theaters where everybody's told not to clap. But this was bedlam. It was like a community meeting with folding chairs and people perched on bleachers. It had a sort of lions in the Coliseum feel. Reagan and Bush take their seats, and then there are these four other dudes, the four shutout candidates, standing like the sad members of some lost tribe. They had no table and no chairs and, and no microphones. The audience starts pleading their case. One person yelled, give him a chair. Another fellow suggested that Howard, Senator Howard Baker, who is short, could stand on the table instead of taking a seat. Dole tried to lean over and speak into uh, editor John Breen of the Nashua Telegraph's microphone, but the editor blocked him from doing so. So the crowd is in an uproar. The publisher of the paper said it looked like a boxing match, and the four lonely candidates raised their hands in unison as if they were triumphant fighters. They were making gestures while Reagan and Bush sat at their seats, Reagan trying to get them to participate in the debate, Bush kind of staring forward, taking it in, but also not really participating in the madness. Reagan's aide, Jim Lake, took a piece of paper from NBC anchorman John Chancellor's notebook and wrote a note to Reagan while all of this craziness was going on, saying, everybody's with you. And Reagan looked over at him and winked. At this point, editor John Breen tried to start the actual debate, speaking the introductory remarks in his microphone. And Reagan made repeated pitches in his microphone, which was on because they had the sound man on their team. Reagan made repeated pitches to include the others. And that's where we join the action. Would the, would the sound man please turn Mr. Reagan's mic off? Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Mr. Reagan. Mr. Reagan, 
Mr. Green, you turn on the microphone. You asked for me if you would. I am paying for this microphone, Mr. Green. We don't get to see candidates when they're angry. And that was particularly true of the sunny Ronald Reagan. But man, was he pissed. When Breen first asked that his mic be cut off, Reagan stood up and moved toward him like he was going to slug him. His face was red like he'd been drinking since breakfast. Then when he finally did pop, he called Breen Mr. Green, which was, of course, not his name, but which nobody really cared about. Bush looked exactly like the uptight East Coast preppy that Reagan had tried to make him look like. And Reagan looked like a leader who'd taken charge. Editor Loeb of the Manchester Union Leader, of course, ate this up with delight. He later editorialized and said that Bush looked like the little boy who was worried that his mother might have dropped him off at the wrong birthday party. The four candidates ultimately, though, left the stage having no seats and nowhere to go. And they went into the band room where they held a press conference for an hour later. The press was covering them and not the actual debate, which was just a radio debate. So the coverage the next day would be full of quotes like this one from Howard Baker, who said, if George Bush is the nominee, I'll support him. But I do not plan on George Bush being the nominee. He is not wearing that crown very well. And I'm going to do what I can to make sure that doesn't happen, because I think too much of the Republican Party to see it go down the tubes. Bob Dole of Kansas said, I'll never understand George Bush's attitude as long as I live. They stiffed us. That's what they did. They stiffed us. They said, you can't come, and they had the help of the paper. No doubt in my mind, Bush and the Nashua Telegraph are in this together. So Reagan had all of the candidates and the audience aligned with him against Bush. To control the damage, Bush had to cut a radio spot in the days after the debate that protested at no point did George Bush object to a full candidate forum. That, of course, only put more gas into the fire. And though the debate had not been televised, the radio ad plus the controversy meant that clip of Reagan seizing the microphone and saying, I paid for this microphone, Mr. Green, was shown over and over again on the evening and morning television. And of course, it also became a national story. Reagan went on to wallop Bush in New Hampshire, 50 to 23, a shock that was compounded by the fact that the Boston Globe had polled just days before the primary and said the two men were dead even. Reagan then went on to win all but five of the remaining 33 Republican contests. Was the moment orchestrated or did Reagan simply improvise like all good actors? It was probably a bit of both. John Sears, the campaign manager who had orchestrated it, was reported in newspaper accounts to have been seen at the end of the melee, grinning broadly as he leaned against one of the gym lockers and said to a reporter, just another day on the campaign trail. In a great irony, Sears was then fired between the end of the debate and the actual New Hampshire primary vote, he was the leftover victim of the Iowa caucus defeat. And also he had lots of clashes with Nancy Reagan who wanted to see him gone. So the other question is, did this signature moment turn around Reagan's campaign? It's doubtful, but it probably helped. We just don't know how much it helped. There's a fallacy of the key moment in presidential campaigns where campaigns are turning in a particular direction and then a cinematic moment like this takes place and people invest that moment with the significance as if it were the beginning of a trend rather than a trend that was already well underway. In this case, word spread because reporters were there to cover the debate, and that certainly helped blow up this moment. There were a lot of celebrities, too, there from the press corps, Walter Cronkite, the famous CBS News anchor, and of course, John Chancellor, the NBC anchor. Whatever impact this event had in the end, the ability to seize the moment and show cinematic leadership with all the cameras pointed at you is such a boost 
to a candidate's legacy and the lore of a campaign, it's sort of a surprise that candidates don't confect more of these moments today. We'd love to hear what you think of Whistle Stop. Send us an email at podcasts at slate.com, or even better, leave us a review at the iTunes store. Head over to itunes.com slash slate podcasts. That's all one word, slate podcasts. This podcast has been brought to you by The Great Courses. The Great Courses has over 500 courses taught by top professors and experts, available in audio and video formats. Go to thegreatcourses.com slash whistlestop for a special limited-time offer for Whistlestop listeners. That's thegreatcourses.com slash whistlestop. The show is produced by Mike Wolo. Our managing producer is Joel Meyer. The executive producer of Slate Podcasts is Andy Bowers. Our Whistlestop intern is Brian Rosenwald who, in his run for the White House in 2020, will engage the base with his handsome good looks, his appeal to young voters, and an affable yet bumbling running mate whom no one will ever want to succeed him. I'll be back next week with more Tales from the Trail here on Whistle Stop. I'm John Dickerson.